house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. she wanted to share. How man allowed us a peek at Peter Rabbit, Miss Potter. We found it utterly charming. I have decided that you and I are going to be friends. Have you? Will lead to possibilities. We do make rather a good team, don't you think? Beyond her wildest creations. Your book has been very important in my life. You have been very important in my life. And you and mine, Mr. Warren. And you must do it again and again. And again. I would like you to consider doing me the honor, and I do not expect an immediate answer. Discover the remarkable story. Your brother has asked me to marry you. How could you hesitate? If someone came along whom I loved, I would trample my mother. Of a woman whose imagination inspired the world. I'm so glad Norman found you, Beatrix. I was missing something I didn't even know. Norman Warren is a tradesman, Beatrix. No potter can marry into trade, and that's fine. When did we become so high and mighty? You cannot make us the villains, Beatrix. Your mother trotted out countless suitors. I didn't want to be marrying a man simply because he was rich enough to take care of me. Academy Award winner Renee Zellweger, Ewan McGregor, Academy Award nominee Emily Watson. I don't understand you, Beatrix. Our daughter is famous, Helen. You're the only person who doesn't know it. Miss Potter. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast hooking more listeners by casting a fishing line straight to their face. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my watercolor best friend that I just <laughs> drew, Joe Reed. Uh, Chris, I'm trying to look at your outline here that you have in front of me, and it's like hopping off of the page. What's going on? I know. On? The like... outline that we created for this episode, I painted all of it. It's not <laughs> words. It's just, um, you know, bunnies. You know how people talk about like ASMR as something that like calms them or whatever? The people who aren't like fucking horny about it, but like the, for the there are people who it actually like is a source of calming for them. Yes. That for me is the sight of... A very close-up sight of watercolors sort of um, sinking into paper. Do you know what I mean? Interesting. That they, like, which you get at the beginning of this movie, where it's just, like, very close-up shots of her just, like, brush strokes of watercolor and watching it just sort of get soaked up by the paper. With a Rachel Portman score. Yes. I find that very, very comforting and calming. And as this was my first time watching Miss Potter, I was pleasantly surprised by... That, you know, finding something so quickly that I really, really liked about it. So I was kind of pleasantly surprised by the movie, it's a cute movie. as a whole. It's like, not it's not in any way necessary or like, you know, vital, but like I didn't have a bad time watching it. This is, I think, the case where a movie can have a little bit of a stigma because it's in the Oscar conversation. Like I think uh, nobody yes. would have had been looking down their nose at this movie at the time of release if it was outside of Oscar. And I don't, well, I'm sure we'll get only, into it. I don't think it was intended to be initially, and it was well, shoved into the Oscar race. 
Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily true because I think you have any at this point in time, as if you had, you know, Renee had only very recently won her Oscar, and then Chris Noonan. This was essentially his follow up to Babe, like in the American, you know, point of view, right? Where like he didn't make anything in between Babe and this that anybody paid attention to, so he still has like the last thing we had seen from him was this Best Picture-nominated movie that, you know, with a different blow of the breeze, could have actually won. Yeah. And I think it was always going to get some kind of attention, plus, you know, the Miramaxiness, whatever, Weinstein Company-ness. The first year of Weinstein Co. And I I think all of that is true, but my memory of this, and I tried to look it up, but, like, this is the era where it's, like, hard to find those things, particularly Mm -hmm. even with the Wayback Machine— this movie I don't remember as being a ni- slotted for when it was supposed to release until the very last minute. It didn't play any festivals. Right. It literally came out at the very end of the year in mm-hmm. an extremely limited release. I think it- this was a case of Weinstein Co. didn't have anything. It's the same year as Bobby and Bobby bombed. Yeah. And they tried to get something we talked so in our last episode this movie up. we talked in our last episode about the golden globes habit of nominating movies that don't exist and a lot of times when that happens salmon fishing in the yemen was a different story in that it was an early in the year movie that sort of got like revived for that purpose but i think the some of the other times they do it is they will look very far ahead and just be like oh this movie got a qualifying release and it's not supposed to open until like February, but we all got, you know, invited to a junket for it. So we saw it and we'll throw it a nomination. I think I think that was the case with like The Leisure Seeker when um, Helen Mirren got that nomination. Mm-hmm. I know it's been the case for other movies where it's just like, is this movie, has this movie happened? And it's like, no, and it won't for like a while, but... Trust it just us. got a qualifying release, yeah, yeah which yeah, was yeah. the case with The Leisure Seeker, and then I don't think opened until, like, March. Right. This movie, they kept, like, pushing back when it was supposed to expand to, like, try to capitalize on a nomination that probably wasn't going to happen in the first place. Right. So it ended up only Certainly playing, not like, that year. Theaters. Certainly not in 2006 when Best Actress was as stacked as it's ever been. I also think certainly not in 2006, which is a very grim Oscar year where people where a lot of the movies that were taken very seriously were like very serious and this is a lighthearted like yeah. movie that is very pleasant to watch. Remember when the Queen was the lightest option of the best picture nominees and it well besides I mean Little, Little Miss Sunshine. Sunshine. But like, but like okay. Little Miss Sunshine's about suicide attempts. This and is, this is what I was sort of gonna say is that like the Queen being one of the lighter options on the Best Picture slate is still about a woman dealing with the public-facing implications of the death of her daughter-in-law and sort of, you know, yeah, this old woman sort of staring down mortality and the scenes of, you know, her with the, the deer and whatnot. The but, world in mourning. Right. And, like, that's what passed for lightness in this year where the other options were Babel, The Departed, 
letters from Iwo Jima, you know. This dark, is why dark, this dark. is one of my least favorite Oscar races of my lifetime. Yeah, well, you really loved Dreamgirls, so you were wounded from I, uh, Well, yeah, I mean, like, the one chance to inject some joy into this Oscar race. I'm sorry, if you can't find joy in The Last King of Scotland, I don't know what to do with you. So. I know, I know. It's it, like Babel. It has all those yucks, you know, like... <laughs> little Jesus children. Christ. Even, like, movies that we liked. Like, Little okay. Children little is good, children. but, like... Is we're we're definitely getting ahead of ourselves, but Little Children does have joy. How dare you? That movie. I have never... There are so few films directed by heterosexual men that ogle the male body like that movie ogles Patrick Wilson. It's true. I, I think that qualifies as joy. Well, listen, I could say the same about Last King of Scotland and James McAvoy, but here we are. So, mm, But in a long shot. You know, like it's not... <laughs> Fine, you know, yes. Fine. You win. Yes. That movie is obsessed with Patrick Wilson's back. It is true, as it should be. As it should be. But we are here to talk about Miss Potter and specifically one Miss Renee Zellweger, the comeback queen of this Oscar race. This Oscar race? Or are we talking about like 2019? 2019. This current year... Of this episode, the week that this episode is dropping, we are um, is the week that Judy opens. At this point, we'll have seen it. It'll be at Toronto. We've maybe heard some things about it, but hopefully, Renee's movie, my movie, is dropping. Is dropping. As you know, my single, my single is dropping. Is dropping. Yes, exactly. Joseph. Yes. Before we get into the sixty-second plot, how excited are you for the Renee Zellweger comeback? I feel like of the two of us, I'm less excited because I'm less excited for Judy as a whole. I think of I think of the two of us, I'm more inclined to feel like Judy is going to be awful, and I don't. I'm not super looking forward to it. And part of that is that I saw the there was a play on Broadway a few years ago based on these years of Judy Garland's life and I hated that play and I don't think it this movie is based on it in any way but I it think is. that's coloring oh it is it is it is I know it's based I don't on think that it's time listed on IMDb life. but if you look up the actual um okay press well, then, notes for the movie it is credited as being based off of it's, that play it was called like over the end rainbow, of the rainbow end of the rainbow that's what it yeah. was I really kind of hated that play. I thought it was pretty didactic and pretty um, not very insightful for Ju- about Judy Garland towards the end of her life. And so, based on that, I'm not really optimistic that this is going to be the great comeback vehicle for Renee that we maybe want it to be. So, I'm pretty muted in my Renee comeback enthusiasms this year. I'm still... Hopeful that it will happen, but I don't know if it's going to happen for this. For me, okay, you are definitely right that I am way more excited. First of all, I I am going to be excited about a Judy Garland movie. I am a Judy Garland homosexual. <laughs> um, like y'all can be Madonna gays, you can be Lady Gaga gays. I am definitely a Judy gay, um, <laughs> a Judy gay, like adjudicate, um, adjudicate <laughs> the Judy gays. Um, I am also, like, I was, things got kind of nasty for people 
going against Renee Zellweger, at least online, and be the gays online hating against Renee Zellweger. I we think we all feel later. bad about what happened when that photo came out of her with the the post eye job face, and like, I we just, all we all have regrets, as y'all should. Um, because I, and I think because of that, I will always be ready to champion her. I was absolutely ready to champion her a few years ago when the Bridget Jones sequel that came out that everybody forgot about already. Okay, Um, but why did everybody forget about it? Because the movie was just fine, but she was still wonderful in it. Like, I do love her as an actress, and I think she's still rather underrated, though we're far gone from, like, the things that I think were underrated and performances of hers from like the nineties. But I don't know. I'm just happy. I'm really happy to see her back. Um, she even did like a pride event in England that she did a speech to the crowd that I was like, Renee, you are just letting your freak flag freak flag fly. I hate that assemblage of words. Um, and like, (laughs) she tried to give this speech that was like, you know, the whole thing of like forcing actresses to say gay rights on camera. She was trying to do in her most like lack of ability to just be succinct, just shout gay rights. Uh-huh. And it ended up being this long speech that was so delightful. And like the one thing Renee and I have in common is that we are not great, succinct public speakers. So like, <laughs> We stand along Gwinded Queen. The interesting thing I think about Renee Zellweger in 2019 is she's now back on the scene, but we don't we don't know anything really about her relative to what we feel like we know about other celebrities and actresses. And I don't know if we ever really did. She was never somebody who was like a recluse, but she was like in retrospect, I think we can all sort of see she was pretty opaque about what she would put into the kind of machine, the acting celebrity publicity gossip machine, right? Where Mm -hmm. she had this sort of personal life that never really got delved into. She married Kenny Chesney and then quickly divorced him, and nobody ever found out what that was about. There were certainly rumors about that, but that was never really delved into she had that relationship with jim carrey that never got really jack investigated. white yeah yeah and like so like but you look at like actresses today i feel like we seem to know much much more about jennifer lawrence michelle williams um amy adams you know i don't think renee was around during the whole like hollywood roundtable hollywood reporter roundtable era right I don't oh god we- i hope she's in this year's I don't think I she will be, that but she'll like, do it because that she would doesn't be like doing those type of interviews. But this is what I mean. So I feel like she's an actress who I don't know how to feel about her comeback because everything that there is to feel about it is something that I'm projecting onto her because I don't know her. We don't know, you know, her beyond her performances. And so she's an and actress whose career has always gone up and down based on her last performance. And I think that's why after we do the the plot description will get into her career, but I think that's why her career has so many sort of hairpin turns and quick ups and downs, is because she's not an actress who we have really a narrative about beyond what movies she's in. Which I find fascinating and for me makes it easier to root for her. Because I know what the highs are and yeah. like the investment is just the actual performance itself. 
So uh, whether or not Judy will be that, I am still excited. See, and this is why I am more reticent is because I don't know yet whether I'm rooting for the Renee comeback because I don't know yet whether she's good in Judy. And I think I will have to wait to see Judy to then know whether I'm rooting for the Renee comeback or not. Where if it was another actress who I maybe had a little bit more of like a personal investment in, I could just be like, good or bad, I'm happy she's back. Do you know what I mean? Interesting. Interesting. Anyway, I love her, and we're here to talk about her today. But we are here today to talk about Miss Potter, starring Renee Zellweger as Peter Rabbit author Beatrix Potter. As you mentioned, it's directed by Chris Noonan, who also directed Oscar nominee and Best Picture nominee, Babe. It's written by Richard Maltby Jr. It also stars Ewan McGregor, her um, Down With Love love interest. Uh, We talked a bit about Down With Love the last episode. Uh, Yeah, two episodes in a row we're talking about Ewan McGregor, so we did not plan that. No, that was an accident. We planned this only on Renee's Hell. It's not a Ewan and McGregor miniseries. Although, honestly, imagine we, we could can't have remember done anything about this movie <laughs> other than Renee Zellweger having not previously seen it. Um, yeah. But yes, her Down with Love co star um, also stars Emily Watson, um, who is always great in roles that aren't really serving her. Um, Bill Patterson and Barbara Flynn as the Elder Potters. Bill um, Patterson, a.k.a. Uh, dad from Fleabag. Yes. Um, also dad in this, and he is just as, like, kind of cuddly, though less complicated. Anyway, um, the movie opened limited on December 29th, 2006. What a great time to launch an <laughs> Oscar contender that people have not previously seen. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of petered out into That's theaters so for the next few months. Um, but that is Miss Potter, Golden Globe nominee for Renee Zellweger, Miss Potter. Yeah. Joseph. Yes. Before we get into the film itself, would you like to give our listeners a 60-second plot description? I will do my best. If you are ready, okay. your time starts now. Okay, so when the movie begins, Beatrix Potter has already started writing her children's books about Peter Rabbit and and drawing these adorable little, as I said, watercolors of the illustrations. She's trying to sell the book to various people. The uh, one uh, pair of brothers that she's trying to sell it to, they kind of accept, but then they pass the assignment on to their sort of wheezy younger brother, played by Ewan McGregor, who is, you know, sort of the, not the black sheep of the family, but kind of a nerd. And Beatrix is on her way to spinsterhood, even though she's not that old. And then Ewan has seconds. also a sister who's played by Emily Watson, and the three of them are kind of like the three single, you know, not that old spinsters. But then Renee and um, what is his name? Norman. Ewan McGregor's name is Norman. They fall in love, and they're going to get married. Except her parents don't want the, him her marrying a tradesman, and they block it. And she sort of wears them down. But by the time she wears them Ten down, seconds. he gets sick and dies, and it's so sad. And then she sells, but she becomes super rich off of the book, and she buys a bunch of land, and then it's a national trust, and it's uh, her legacy is secured. Yeah, that's time. That sort of that, that's sort of all that happens yeah, you in got the second it all. half of the movie, right? He dies. You really and, got it all. And she, you know, holds on to her farm. I have a lot of questions about Norman. Do you think because, he's gay? No, that was the thing. I was like, I don't ever understand why he's like the outcast brother of this family. It's a little wheezy. Like, he actually, the I mean, sure, he's, he's like, wheezy, but, like, they never really categorize him as, like, sick or... No, he's not, like, here's our young, sickly brother, even though he yeah. ends up dying of, like, a cough. 
but like he's an outcast essentially of their business and they don't take him seriously as a businessman right. but like the second that he meets with Beatrix he has like great financial plans for how to like deal with her books and like yeah. get them well, to the public and get people excited about them and it works because she becomes like the richest woman in England kind of at some point where they're just right. like oh you have so much money and I don't under like there's some things that I was like, wait, are they trying to code him as gay in this movie? I don't quite understand. It doesn't really feel like it has some of the classic romantic... trappings of gay coding, but I don't think yes. that's what it's supposed to be. Where it's like, oh, his sister is his best friend. Oh, he and the woman who he's sort of like nominally involved with and his sister are like a trio. And it's like I've seen a movie before. I know what this is code for in like costume dramas is when, you know, Especially a boy and a girl and a boy's sister. sister Millie is like right. definitely coded as a lesbian. Oh, absolutely. Right. She's got these buttoned up tops and, and hats and whatnot. And it's just like, yes, that's totally true. But it's like, I've seen Bride's Head Revisited. I know what's going on here. Like three people can't be in a friendship. One of them has to be gay for, you know, somebody. But yeah. And then they never introduce anybody. I feel like if he was supposed to be coded as gay in this movie, they would have had like a bookstore young man sort of like cross his, his eyeline at some point, right? And that never happens. Well, and I wonder if it's just conjecture on the movie's part that it kind of is too like pleasant to like it, this or movie too, is too afraid of like flying in the face of actual historic yeah, people. like this like, movie doesn't want to really go that deep or really have a take and like it's perfectly fine and you know maybe it's just them potentially wondering that about these characters right. in a way that we don't know for a fact so it doesn't really want to get into it right but I, this romance was strange to me that's why i got why i asked that initially did you feel like there was any like romantic feeling before the actual proposal happens i did not no but i've seen this kind of movie where like the narrative requires that these two be in love so it's fine i think i had the same problem honestly with salmon fishing in the yemen yeah where and maybe this is just a Ewan McGregor problem with me, as I mentioned in the last episode. I'm I'm sort of, I'm less of a fan of his than other people are. Um, but that was another movie where I was just like, I guess there's supposed to be romantic feelings there because the story demands it. Like, that's the kind of story this is. But I'm not feeling it kind of at all. I think I maybe yeah. felt it a little bit more in Miss Potter, but maybe that's just because I think Renee does actually a really good job of yeah. selling what Beatrix is going through in terms of like I don't think it's necessarily that this one man has like swept her off her feet but I think it's she has now been presented with the chance for the kind of life that she had kind of you know, it's sort of a cliche, you know, I had given mm -hmm. up on this dream of, of this certain kind of life and now she sees this option for professional success and a man who loves her and, you know, and allows chance, her to be herself, a chance to marry somebody her. she likes. I think she was sort of worried that she was going to end up sort of married off to somebody she didn't even like. And so this is a much better option. But I think this movie also makes the case that like, as sad as she is when he dies, 
that like her friendship with Emily Watson's character seems just as valuable to me. I don't think they're mm-hmm. ever trying to sell any kind of romance between those two, but I think it's just one of those movies that like the companionship of these people, you know, is good enough. Yeah. Right. I definitely think that too. And I think it is interesting that we're following this up after salmon fishing in the Yemen, not just because of Ewan McGregor, but it's also like, I'm a little bit more invested in what this movie is before it has anything romantic. Right. Yes. Even though I will say the romance portions of this movie, I was way more emotionally invested in Miss Potter than I was salmon fishing in the Yemen. Yes. Um, I think this is a better movie than that one is. Like I definitely, I, I think definitely. I would give this movie a solid B minus. Yeah, I mean, it's a definitely a very watchable movie. I think if it was the type of thing that was just sitting around on Netflix, this movie is not all that easy to get a hold of. No, I had to fucking purchase it on Amazon. <laughs> and I got it from the library. <sighs> this is what I get for not watching, not being prepared enough. Or all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I've got to watch the movie for the podcast tomorrow. And I don't have any other options except to, like, pay $8 to own it now. So now anybody who looks at, like, the movies that I own, the movies that I own on Amazon are such a weird hodgepodge. Because it's, like, a lot of it was, like, stuff I watched for work that I had to purchase because it was only available for purchase. Sometimes it's stuff that I didn't want to wait for. So, like, Gloria Bell is on there as a purchase. And, wait, am I brave enough to just, like, read these off in front of everybody? Do it. Hold on a second. Sometimes my rental list is a little hilarious. Though I will say, ever since we started this podcast, all of my recommended for you sections of all my streaming platforms (laughs) are fully garbage. Garbage. (laughs) Garbage. Okay, so I have, there was this bundle that if you signed up for something, you got like five free movies automatically, right? So it was... Big Hero 6, Jason Bourne, Lego Movie, Ice Age, and then the Ghostbusters remake. So I have all of those. I have 20 Feet from Stardom, which was one of those movies I didn't want to wait for. I have The Broken Hearts Club, that gay romantic comedy, The Broken Hearts Club. Have you ever seen that? Yes, not like in Timothy a long Oliphant time. and John Mahoney and whatnot. I, I love probably that movie. could not speak to the movie. I haven't seen it in that long. Uh, I really, it's one of those, it's not quite a guilty pleasure, but like, I know it's not great, but I love it. Um, Wild, the Stephen Fry, Oscar Wilde movie, that movie, The Tribe, that, oh, I hated that movie. I did too, and now I own it, because I watched it for work, so great. Street Kings, which I also hated that I watched for work. All Eyes on Me, the Tupac uh, biopic that I hated. Deny Guerrera is so good in it, though. Um, I bought A Few Good Men just because I wanted to own A Few Good Men. Uh, Return of the Jedi, same thing. Burlesque was, like, on sale for two bucks or whatever, so I was like, yes, please. Duh. Um, but then, like, Family Fang, I watched for um, Sam Herbst's podcast that I was going to be on to talk the about... Kid Manifesto! Uh, Kid Manifesto. You should listen to the Kid Manifesto. It's a great podcast. And that was my movie, so, like, now I own the Family Fang. Um, father figures that... Forever. Yeah, Father Figures, that awful Glenn Close, Owen Wilson movie, where it's like, oh, Glenn Close is our that mom. poster is straight from hell. It's so bad. I'm looking at it right now. It's awful. 
Hitman's Bodyguard I had to watch for work. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. Strangers Pray at Night I had to watch for work. And then Gloria Bell. So, yeah, my my list, my Amazon video library is a goddamn horror show. And to that horror show, I now add Miss Potter, which is honestly However, mid-pack. Uh, this is what I've been waiting to say to you after, as you've done this list of movies that you've unfortunately had to purchase. I would wager that you will watch Miss Potter again, at least before the, a lot of those other movies that are not Gloria Bell. Well, because, certainly before Father Figures again. Yeah. I mean, Miss Potter is like the perfect Saturday morning movie. Like, if y'all need to nurse a hangover, put on Miss mm-hmm. Potter. It is delightful. I think Eat in a vacuum, while yes. watching this movie. The problem is, anytime I go to watch Miss Potter from my video library, it's going to be right next to Burlesque, and like that's not oh that's not a contest. I'll watch Burlesque every time. That's that's very fair. Yeah. Um, or Patty but, Cakes. Like, that's do, another one I, I have. Patty Cakes. Uh, Patty Dollar Sign Cakes. Yes. Or Patty <laughs> Patty Cake, cake dollar, dollar Sign. sign. <laughs> Patty Cake Dollar Sign. Um, Danielle McDonald's good in that movie. Who is now goddamn she pretty much Australian? Only Dumplin and racist. Dump Dumplin. Dumplin. As uh, as our our friend Richard Lawson would say, um, did we know she's Australian? Yes, I didn't until yes, like recently because I remember the stories when Patty Cake Dollar Sign was playing at Sundance and like she spoke for the first time in the audience and they heard her natural dialect and there were audible gasps in the crowd. Apparently, <laughs> I've seen several tweets saying I would have done that. I would have done the same thing. Um. Amazing. I never see those Australian accents coming. They always surprise me. Anyway. Um, anyway. Um, Why did Miss yeah, Potter I have Oscar Potter is, uh, I, Exclusively because of Renee Zellweger. Um, and I think it was only sold to Oscar voters exclusively on Renee Zellweger. Like, they didn't even go for a costume design nomination. And I don't know. I mean, like, there are definitely worse movies. There is definitely more cynical plays or how do I want to phrase this? I think mm-hmm. it was cynical for Weinstein Co. Boo Hiss to try to shove this movie into the Oscar race because they didn't really have anything to go off of and they were just kind, kind of trying to ride the Renee Zellweger wave again. But, like, I have few complaints about this movie that is not very ambitious but still... I don't know. I like I had a good time watching this movie. Certainly better than I expected. Okay, so let's talk about why Miss Potter had Oscar buzz to begin with. I think the answer to this question is pretty straightforward. I think it's two pronged. I think it's Renee, and I think it's also Chris Noonan, as I mentioned, which people kind of forget how much everybody loved Babe at the time, but like everybody loved Babe. That was that came so much closer to winning Best Picture than I think any of us realized. That's probably fair. And also, I mean, it's kind of the exact opposite of Braveheart, which won. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's the. In a lot of ways, that it's like if you have two movies that are diametrically opposed, or mm-hmm. not even opposed, but that are so different, it's very easy to see camps building. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the, the I think that was only complicated by the fact that, like, Apollo 13 was another camp that year. Mm-hmm. And that movie wasn't really, like, it's not like it was the feel-good alternative to Braveheart, which was what Babe was. But it was the, uh, you know, 
rah rah proud American kind of triumph of the human spirit movie, which mm-hmm. was different than Braveheart, but apparently not different enough. <laughs> and then there's Sense and Sensibility, which was probably too small. Or, like, a shoe-in for other categories? Yeah, I think Sense and Sensibility was like, oh, that's your acting and writing movie, so we're not going to really consider it Mm -hmm. as... You know, the fact that, like, Ang Lee didn't even get nominated for Best Director is wild to me, but... And then what's our fifth nominee? For Best Picture? Il Postino. Il Postino. That was the Il Postino. Which was the Miramax play. And that was, yes, and that was the other thing that was, like, that was such a storyline. That was maybe... I think that was part of what let Braveheart kind of, you know, make it to the finish line without a whole lot of controversy, which was the story wasn't Braveheart versus anything. The story was, I can't believe Harvey Weinstein got Il Postino a nomination, you know, posthumously. I don't think that movie was ever really a threat to win, but it was so amazing that it happened at all, that the nomination Mm -hmm. happened at all. And yeah, a lot of interesting moving parts in 1995. And... So the Noonan the 90s Oscar years are so different with like what the expectation and the culture of the Academy was too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like Braveheart ends up being the huge movie. And I think maybe as beloved as Babe was, maybe at the time the thing that's holding Babe back is that it wasn't taken seriously because it's a talking animal movie. Yeah. Whereas I think there would be a lot more uh, wider discussion about what Babe is and what Babe means today, maybe? Like, there would be a lot more room, and we also have more room for genre. Yeah. Am I on to something here? No, I think you're right. I think also there's definitely, like, the likelihood that Babe would be tied into, like, current events. Because Babe mm-hmm. is the kind of movie that is so... this Such a pure distillation of things like... Um, cooperation and anti-prejudice and this kind of stuff that like it could be grafted onto any number of current events or current political whatever. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I find it yes. very easily you could very easily make an anti-Trump you know pro narrative pro immigration walls are bad this whole kind of thing around Babe pretty easily. Whereas in the 90s, the way that movies were discussed, it was like, this is just a very charming talking animal movie that is done very well. And like, it it super Or like, even if people were having those conversations around that movie, it wasn't given the type of gravitas because of what the movie is. Yeah. Maybe. Well, plus also, I think at that time, this wasn't an election year, so like, politics wasn't quite so at the forefront. I'm trying to remember even like, what the politics of 1995 would have been. You know what I mean? Like, I guess, like, mm-hmm. Newt Gingrich had semi-recently sort of taken over the, the Congress with, you know, that whole message. But I think nowadays, I think everything gets boiled down to politics and, you know, current events a lot more quickly. Mm-hmm. Babe's such a good movie, though. It's so weird to me that, like, we we're recording this the weekend of d23 and so they we got the lady and the tramp trailer this week and so a lot of people in (gasps) in contrasting lady and the tramp to the lion king are like well at least they used real dogs for this and they're you know digitally manipulating their mouths to speak like they did in babe and i was like first of all it's really funny that like this cutting edge technology is a thing that goes back 20 years and 25 years <laughs> and b it's like take that movie's name out of your mouth cuz i don't want to hear 
Babe compared in any kind of way to whatever junk Lady and the Tramp turns out to be, first of all. just like The other thing between the Lady and the Tramp and Lion King dialogue is, like, they spent a half... I don't even want to know how much on Lion King and this Lady and the Tramp movie just looks like such an afterthought that they put, I'm sure the people actually involved, but like Disney's dumping this movie on Disney plus, like it is not a high priority for them. They, it's clear that they are less invested in the quality of this movie or at least the craft of this movie. I don't know. I don't want to shit on anybody who was making that movie, but at least from the Disney angle, I don't even know, man. Yeah, we should never speak of it again. So, but the <laughs> fact that, like, that Noonan makes no movies in between Babe in 95 and Miss Potter in 2006, and as far as I know, there's no real reason for it. It's, I don't know, it's strange. And yet... Miss Potter, because it was such a late year qualifying release and afterthought, we never really got the like Chris Noonan is back storyline. Right. It's not like he's like the great auteur of our time either. It's like Babe was basically his first movie as well. So like I he's sort of a you know, it's almost like he got conjured out of nothingness, made Babe, and then went back to like the realm that he came from. Like he's a little elf. What a fascinating, like single best director nomination though. Absolutely. Like, do we have many of those that somebody gets nominated for Best Director on a first film and never, like, has Never makes much... anything again? Ben Zeitlin yeah, so far. Yeah, like, that's wild. <laughs> like, even... Well, I guess it's not his first film. There's a credit for something in 1973 that looks like a feature called Bulls with minimal, anima- minimal information. Right. Let's just say that Babe is his first. Never mind. Certainly uh, his first, like, like feature of any note, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, every once in a while you'll get a movie or a director like that who... I'm trying to go through, like, the Oscar list now of, like, best directors who... I mean... That same year, in 95, Noonan's nominated Mike Figgis. Like, Mike Figgis kept making movies, but they were, Mm -hmm. like, significantly diminishing returns every time. And he mostly started doing, like, TV after that. Even, like, Ben Zeitlin has something coming. Well, allegedly. I'll believe it when I set my eyes on it. Allegedly, Wendy is coming, finger quotes soon. I would love to see it, man. Like, I I loved Beasts of the Southern Wild so much. The epitome of the Monique meme, I would like to see it, is me for Ben Zeitlin's follow-up. For real, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, going through more recent lists of Best Directors, these are... I think Best Director has become much, much more heavily... uh, Much more auteur-heavy lately, Mm -hmm. I think, with nine or ten, or whatever, eight or nine Best Picture nominees to go from. best Best Director tends to sort of skim the most auteur friendly up the top with mm-hmm. you know some significant exceptions lenny abrahamson being one i still haven't seen that uh, gothic horror movie that he made that was supposedly pretty good i think you would like it, it a lot yeah. um a little stranger perfect Stran- little stranger not perfect um, stranger i liked oh, it a lot um yep. It's operating on kind of definitely more of a gothic level and it was promoted more as a horror movie and it was like the last weekend of August. So like that movie disappeared entirely, but Mm. it's way more interesting. Um, It's definitely like my taste of a movie, but I think you would like it. Yeah. Donald Gleason is really good in it. I mean, it is wild to me that a well-reviewed Donald Gleason movie has passed by me. 
Yeah. Meanwhile, I saw him in the not well-reviewed The Kitchen and was very satisfied with what I saw. I know. Like, oh, God. Let, let's not speak of The Kitchen again. What a what a heartbreak. The Kitchen is a heartbreak. The Kitchen is a mess. But if you need um, an injection of rough trade-looking Donald Gleason in your life, you found it. And He and Lizzie Moss get, like turned on and horny for each other chopping up dead bodies yes. <laughs> and it's still a fundamentally boring movie but like those How parts does this happen those parts are you're 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 not a thing that you just said is incorrect in any way they get very horny for each other in that movie and it's almost entirely because of murder and dismemberment and truly yeah. we stand a little bit i don't know i do I just, I, oh, man, man. <laughs> okay, so uh, then aside from Noonan, I think the bulk of the reason why this movie had Oscar buzz was because of Renee Zellweger. I don't think anybody really expected, even when, you know, we were a year out and Miss Potter was, you know, no release date, but sort of on the horizon. I don't think anybody expected, you know, the Beatrix Potter biopic to take the Oscar stage by storm. But I think no. a lot of people looked at Renee, who again was only a couple years removed from her supporting actress win and thought, okay, well, major actress playing a real person, which is always a boon for Oscars and thought, okay, in a Weinstein product, in a Weinstein has- product. Right, right. Exactly. From an Oscar nominated director. I think all of those ingredients ma- uh, amounted to, well, at the very least, let's put her on our long lists for, Yes, you know, for but for at best the actors. same time, I don't think that the Renee Zellweger thing would have really had much Oscar buzz weight if the Golden Globe nomination didn't happen, because I think it, sh- it this was a performance that was probably still struggling to get on those long list predictions until yeah. that Globe nomination happens. Actually, my recollection of it is a little bit uh, sort of what we talked about last week with Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, which is the Golden Globes nominating a performance that is almost entirely out of gas and the Globe nomination doesn't so much reignite that campaign, but sort of like draw an arrow to the fact that like, Oh, this is this Oscar buzz has died Mm -hmm. where I think once, even like once those Golden Globe nominations came out already, it was like Renee Zellweger and Miss Potter. Remember when we thought that was going to happen? Like nobody really, expected i think so her category that year that was the year that meryl streep won for the devil wears prada which was already on its way to an oscar nomination i think by this point there was a lot of we're really starting to take the meryl thing and devil wears prada very seriously people forget how at least initially yes it was a summer had to be convinced about devil wears prada with meryl even yes there was a lot of you know, genre bias. I think people thought it was a popcorn movie. I think people initially thought the movie... I think there's a sexism factor there, too, specifically with what this movie is. And And a lot of people... A lot of people thought the movie... The general opinion of that movie was a lot lower initially than what it is now. I think now people realize that this is a pretty good example of that kind of genre of a movie. And it's so rewatchable that Mm -hmm. it gets respect now than it didn't get then but i think by this point certainly by the time she won the golden globe and made such a good speech that was the year where she talked about um if you want to see these movies you have to talk you have to get out and talk to your 
theater distributor, your theater owners, and demand that they show these movies. And by these movies, she means, you know, smaller movies, movies starring women, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. a thing. And it was a really, really good speech. And I think by that point, people were like, oh, okay, you know, Meryl's in this conversation. Meryl's probably going to happen. So the other nominees in Actress in a Comedy or Musical that year... This is actually, I think, a really great lineup. Like, I don't think Renee Zellweger is bad. I definitely think being in comedy, I think... I've definitely seen people say, why is that considered a comedy? I would buy this as a comedy more so than I would Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, to relate it back to last week's episode with a similar conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's this, comedy. I really it's... like this lineup, actually. Yeah, so it's Meryl Streep, it's Renee Zellweger. Beyonce gets a nomination for Best Actress for Dreamgirls, yeah. which was a nomination that nobody expected to contend at the Oscars. Already, Jennifer Hudson was like, the pick from the Dreamgirls cast. Nobody really... And then Eddie Murphy as well. But nobody really looked to the leads in those movies, which were Beyonce and Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx didn't even get a Globe nomination, which is interesting. And this was also the era, which we've talked about before, where Oscar watchers and film fans were very disrespectful towards Beyonce in a way that, like, it makes me laugh to think of today. Like, this was very disrespectful. Nobody would dare say the things about Beyonce that they said back then about how she I am wagging my finger so hard at all of them. That performance is so good. I don't know if I would say the performance is so good. I think she has mm. moments in that movie that are some of my favorite moments in that movie. I think that if we had watched that movie with more respect for Beyonce, I think Listen has a better chance of winning Best Original Song because Mm -hmm. that section of the movie where she performs Listen is great, is so, so, so good. I think she performs that song with a lot of the same kinds of things that people said about Jennifer Hudson, where, like, she acts her way through the song. She's, you know, she it's all there on her face. It's very compelling. I think that's all true of Beyonce during that performance. I think also in that performance, you also have to realize in a, a certain way that, like, Dreamgirls itself tries to dance around saying what it truly is. She is playing Diana Ross to right. a certain extent. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and... I yeah, think Beyonce Girls... is really smart with how she plays Dina Jones in with an eye on persona and public persona. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a stage Dina Jones and there is an offstage Dina Jones that is very interesting. I think she plays that character arc in really subtle ways that normally would not be rewarded by an awards body. So it's exciting for me to see a more subtle performance being nominated by like the Globes. It's interesting. I will always that... defend that performance. And you are, you know, it's well within your rights to. I appreciate that you are blatantly sucking up to the uh, the agency. And I mean, like, f- uh, like I get that, like I, leaving I, me to get canceled. All I'm. I understand. You will not be canceled. I. I am not coming from this point of view. I, of course, love Beyonce as much as everyone else, but I will also defend that I am not coming from this point of view being a Beyonce stan, even though I am. You didn't put Lemonade on your year-end top ten like some people did? Uh, um, The greatest album of the decade, Lemonade? Yeah, I mean, but it's not a movie. That was a great year. No. Solange also had a great album. Frank Ocean had a great album. No, but um, I mean, th- you didn't put that on your list of best films of the year. Oh, best films, best films. You know. I mean, put it in a theater and I might consider it. Um, okay, all right, all right. This is getting ridiculous. <laughs> but no, like, I think I, I, 
there is a lot of interesting things going on with that film and that movie, and I will always be a defender of both. Fine. Of the film and the performance. Two other the nominees. Other two, mention the other two nominees. Thank you. Because we haven't mentioned them. Um, the other two nominees in that category, Tony Collette for Little Miss Sunshine, which is one of my favorite Golden Globe nominations, because it is a movie that was getting recognized in other categories already. We, Although it's interesting that the Globes didn't nominate, she's the only acting nominee from that movie at the Globes that year, which is interesting because then the, the Oscars turn around and nominate both Abigail Breslin and Alan Arkin, and then Alan Arkin obviously ends up winning. Gets the win. It's interesting that Tony Collette gets the Globe nomination here. That is a classic unsung lead in that all of the other characters around her are bigger characters, have more sort of big moments. I think even like Kinnear and Paul Dano and Steve Carell, all the other members of this family swirling around her have bigger moments and story hooks and that kind of thing. And then in the middle of all of this, Tony Collette is playing this sort of frazzled woman trying to hold her family together in this very unshowy way. And she's fantastic. And I'm glad that like, she got one little bit of recognition for it. Yeah. It's so weird to me still that the only time we've ever given Tony Collette her things has been for United States of Terror. A show that strangely I still have not watched. And a show that a lot Tony of people Collette and Diablo Cody. And a show that a lot of people ended up dismissing out of hand because she's playing a woman with multiple personalities, which is a very kind of classic soap opera trope that gets no respect. Right. And I think when she won that Emmy Award, I think when you know, whenever you get somebody from a not classic comedy, like winning an Emmy for comedy, all of the comedy people get very, very up in arms about how you know, that's not a comedy, that's a drama. And, you know, Edie Falco winning for Nurse Jackie is the same thing. And um, even, like, when Transparent was getting comedy nominations, a lot of people, every once in a while you'll hear about, you know, you know these very serious comedies that, that get more respect than true comedies like Parks and Recreation or whatever. And it's like, I get it. But also, Tony Collette's so fucking good on that show. And yeah. she's, you're right, that was the moment that she finally got her due and, you know, justifiably so. And so the fifth nominee at the Globes that year was... Speaking of people who haven't gotten their due... Aha, uh-huh, yeah, Annette Benning for Running With Scissors, which was definitely a performance that was Oscar-buzzed from very early in the year. From the second it was greenlit when it was originally supposed to be Julianne Moore, that was supposed oh, to be an right. Oscar role. Well, so Running With Scissors isn't interesting because nobody ever talks about it anymore, that book. It's a I'd memoir. Love to do an episode on that movie. We should. That's a memoir by Augustine Burroughs. It was about the kind of uh, rough upbringing childhood that of his. It was his, you know, his own memoir. His mother is this sort of very dramatic but not very attentive sort of personality i believe she has schizophrenia yes right and then he you know, so the the book is all about him being raised by this woman and then going to live with foster families and his coming of age as a gay man and he gets essentially like sexually abused molested it's one of those yes. like fi- riding the fine line of like you it's know, a relationship by, with an abuser. He's but he 15 lives with or whatever. His, and, with and, his mother's therapist, who also has this eccentric family, including uh, his uh, uh, abuser. Right. But, like, it's all kind of drawn in extremes of, like, this therapist, like, 
re- does readings from his poop and like right, right. has a room just to masturbate in. And all of his children are these very sort of like raised by intellectuals, you know, types, and yeah. they range from like more relatable to less relatable. And this book was this, you know, sort of big sensation in the early 2000s. And then um, a Million Little Pieces happens, and that author is kind of exposed as a fraud. And then it's very interesting how, like, we never kind of really heard from Augustine Burroughs as much again. And I always suspected that that was, you know, you reading, you know, a book like Running With Scissors and any of his follow-ups, where you look at this and just, just like, this is all very dramatic for being a true story. And you always sort of suspected that it was zhuzhed up in some way or another. And I think for a while there, we were very, very, very concerned with things like truth in memoir. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's when Augustine Burroughs' books sort of fell out of style. And also, there was always He still this... does, like, essay books. Yeah. There was also this sense memoir. of him... There was a little bit of um, Brett Easton Ellis in him. Not quite that malignant, but there was yeah. a little... Just, like, he always seemed like he relished his... Uh, meanness his sort of spikiness his he's not like the other gays he's only his particular you know type of mm-hmm. type of gay man i don't know there was much as i was fascinated by those books at the time i sort of look back on them and have a little bit of wariness but anyway so Benning, however annette benning is quite good in that movie i think she does a really good job of navigating a lot of the extremity and the gaucheness of it we should also say that's a ryan murphy movie it was his first um, right it, his first i believe film? so i don't think he's done any other standalone movies well he but, did you pray love oh yes i always forget that. and then he directed um, the normal heart which ended up being on hbo but that's right that's yeah. right um but yeah, I think Annette Benning, being the smart performer that she is, not to say that anybody else that does this movie isn't a smart performer. That movie actually has a really great cast. Um, yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow's in that movie. That was the first, that was the origin story, I think, of the Ryan Murphy-Gwyneth Paltrow friendship. Ryan Cox is the, the therapist. Evan Rachel Wood's really good in it. Right. Joseph Noted Fines. Monterey barista, fisherman barista, Joseph Cross is the lead. Right. Um, right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Annette Bennett, she's really good at kind of leveling off that movie's like coarseness, um, even yeah. playing this very highly pitched character. And I think ultimately, Benning ends up losing the veteran standoff with Streep, and so Streep then joined Oscar nominees Helen Mirren, Judy Dench for Notes on a Scandal, Kate Winslet for Little Children, Penelope Cruz for Volver. And, like, that Oscar lineup ends up being one of the best ever. I think we talked actress, about this oh before. my God, in my lifetime. Like, that's a full, like, you... Helen Mirren is easily my least favorite, and I don't fully understand the love for that. I think it's more the performer. But, like, I could any other day of the week give it to any of the other four actresses. It's a really good a different category. Word. It's a really it's good category. So, yeah, so Renee Zellweger was always going to have trouble cracking into that but i think also you look at where this movie comes in her career Selweger's career is a very interesting one to me because for a while there it took her a minute to really kind of crack into the 
the sort of American marketplace, right? Where she, there was a while there where she's just sort of like, if you see any movie made in Texas in the mid nineties, she's in it. Um, she doesn't really get like, no, she's like, she's in dazed and confused and not really credited. And you just sort of see her in the background of a scene or like reality bites. It's the same way. And it's just like, Oh, okay. So this is just sort of Texas chainsaw massacre, the next generation. Right. Right, her and McConaughey are in that. And then uh, 1995, Empire Records happens. Empire Records, I don't know about you, I have such a soft spot for that movie. I, I have such rem- memories of watching that movie with my sister. We would, like, watch it often enough that we knew all the words. Attention, Rick Manning fans. To your left, you will notice a shoplifter being chased by night manager Lucas. This young man will be caught. Deep fried in a vat of hot oil and syrup to our first 100 customers. <laughs> Just another tasty treat from the gang at Empire Records. Where she's not the female lead, that's Liv Tyler, who we're supposed to like care very deeply about whether Liv Tyler's going to end up with this guy and whether she's going to throw her virtue away to Rex Manning, who was the pop star who comes to visit the store that day. And all the while, there's Renee Zellweger playing Liv Tyler's best friend, who's sort of, you know, this sort of slutty i hate to say slutty but like whatever like that's the character description right is that like she's very the easy, 90s she's portrayal. the easy girl with the short skirts and the whatever very sexually liberated and she ends up wanting to sing with the band the 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 one of the characters has a band and they play at the benefit to save the record store at the end and then she gets up and she sings with Sugar them and it's all tri- it's very triumphant and I love her. Love, love, love. Renee's it's very a... much the thing where it's like the emotional trajectory. The movie thinks it has one emotional trajectory that the is separate from the one the audience has. Yeah. And that scene when she actually gets up there and does Sugar High is so good. And it's so, so fun. Good. Also, the fact that like by the end of that movie, she and the Robin Tunney character, you get the sense that like they've both realized that like they're two sides of the same coin and they should they're probably more natural allies than they are enemies. And I feel like if we follow Empire Records down a long enough timeline, I think those two characters remain friends a lot longer than mm-hmm. Zellweger and Liv Tyler do. Well, Sinead O'Rebellion. <laughs> shock me, shock me, shock me with that deviant behavior. That is so clever. I swear to God, you get smarter the shorter your skirt gets. And you get smarter the shorter your hair gets. So it's probably a good thing you went with that. Yeah. It's a wonderful look for you, darling. I just love Empire Records. So that, for me, is the big Renee breakout movie. And sometimes people realize that, and sometimes they don't, because so soon after that, she gets cast in Jerry Maguire. And that is like the, you know, a star is born moment. Rags to riches, zero to a hundred. All of a sudden, she's the the lead love interest in a Tom Cruise movie. And not just a Tom Cruise movie, but like the Tom Cruise movie. The Tom Cruise activation movie of like, this is who... We this is how we view Tom Cruise, at least in the mid nineties. On either like side of that did. movie, you have to go a while before you find a more definitional Tom Cruise movie, either before it or after it. So like I think for a good decade, uh all told, I think you're right, like the entire nineties basically, like that becomes the Tom Cruise movie. And she then becomes she's easily his most memorable on screen love interest, right? Yes. By, like, by a factor of ten. Like, it's her, and, like, far behind is, like, Kelly McGillis, maybe, or, like, Elizabeth Shue in Cocktail, maybe. 
But like by far, because after Jerry Maguire, not long after Jerry Maguire, he stops having he stops making movies where the romance is a central component, right? He always has a mm-hmm. love interest, but it's not like we remember that as like the main part of his movies. I'm trying to think of exceptions, but I don't think it's... Some of that's probably just her performance. I think she's legitimately great in that movie. She, it's, it's wild still, to me It's wild to me that she didn't get nominated for Supporting Actress. In the annals she got of a like, SAG nomination, yeah. but nothing else. I mean, she probably was like MTV Movie Awards for that movie, I'm sure, somewhere along the lines. But There was a yeah, while there. I think it's really bizarre, considering how beloved Jerry Maguire was, particularly by awards bodies, that there wasn't more for her in Jerry Maguire. Yes. I think, and part of that is he kind of, I think he and Cuba Gooding Jr., that's a lot of oxygen to compete with, right? And then, like, it's not like Lip Nicky was getting, like, buzz for any awards, but, like, there's just a lot of parts of that movie that are so memorable, and I think she's fighting for, you know, space in the conversation with all of it, but, like, even that considered. I think the fact that, like, she doesn't get nominated for Jerry Maguire and Robin Wright doesn't get nominated for Forrest Gump to be the the two most baffling Oscar omissions of the 90s for me. Right. I think we also mentioned semi-recently, like, Christopher Plummer and The Insider, so I'll add that to the conversation. And maybe Joan Allen and Pleasantville as well. Maybe there's, like, a solid top five there, but, like, those are the four. (laughs) It's... Shocking. It is. It is genuinely strange. And then, after that, she still kind of she opposite Meryl in One True Thing. I think she is really good in that movie. Mm -hmm. But then Nurse Betty comes, which is probably too weird. Although she in a year that they're nominating Juliette Binoche for Chocolat, she also wins wins the Golden Globe for that though. Like for a while there, the Golden Globes were, you know, treating actresses a lot better and. She's excellent in Nurse Betty, but I think you're right. I think there's a there's a definite sense of a bridesmaid era for her, right? Where it's Jerry mm-hmm. Maguire, One True Thing, Nurse Betty, where she's putting in this like really great work, and the recognition is either going to her co-stars or to nobody at all. And then Bridget Jones's Diary is like the moment it all comes together for her. We're like critical hit popular hit she's able to like take this very beloved book character that a lot of people thought she couldn't pull off because she was american and it all comes together and i think she had to fight for that oscar nomination yeah and it pulled it like it it she pulled it off i think a lot of people sort of saw that as naomi watts's nomination that didn't happen for mulholland drive that year which Probably I mean, there was. was a lot of, like, uh, uh, definitely, like, that's a, a nomination that had to be, like, fought for in one. Like, that's a spring release movie. It was a genre movie that people weren't taking seriously. Um, I think, sadly, the thing that probably got her that nomination is a lot of, like, trivial things that don't really speak to the performance. Like, I remember the narrative of that campaign being, like, she put on all this weight. Right. And, like, relying on the, she's such a, like, purebred Texan playing a yeah. Brit. And yeah. it's like, but that's actually a really, like, I think the things that are strange about her version of Bridget Jones and, like, a weirdo who can't stop talking, like, I don't know how you play that and be so funny and not be cloying. 
it's a really good performance and it's a romantic comedy performance and like those ones we say it again and again and again but those don't get nominated enough so like that's yeah. a real triumph and then that kicks off her like oscar heavy portion of her career this is what i'm talking about when it's like her career takes these like very hairpin turns into these very defined eras we're now 2001 through 2003, she gets three straight Oscar nominations. Bridget Jones's Diary, Chicago, which she wins the SAG Award for that. I think that Oscar was a lot closer than people would... Going into that Oscar ceremony, a lot of people thought Zellweger was going to nip it from uh, Kidman at the last second. And maybe that's what Denzel meant by by a nose. No, it wasn't. He was being a dick. Um, And then 2003, third straight nomination. She finally wins for Cold Mountain. We've talked about this... When did we end up talking so much about Cold Mountain? Oh, our, well, our whole miniseries. Our 2003 miniseries. You're right, you're right, you're right. Um, Which she, at that point, she was such a foregone conclusion to be winning for that performance before we'd seen anything for the movie. And, like, that movie was a front runner the whole year. And we talked about this somewhat in our miniseries, but I think. I think this is where some of the animosity against her started a little bit. Oh, People tend no, to not even resent, yeah. especially, I think, in this era of, like, the 2000s Oscars. There's a resentment that builds against people who are foregone conclusions, and sometimes even against the films them- themselves. Also, she was also the recipient of whatever Chicago backlash existed, Mm-hmm. was a lot about her was a lot about her not being a good enough singer or a good enough dancer Which is the point and no i know we've talked about this but i mean i just mean the fact of it is that people who were backlashing against chicago backlashed against her mm-hmm. her parts of chicago and then right exactly what you said with there was a lot of resentment against cold mountain so like by the time she won the oscar public opinion whatever among like you know cinephiles and oscar watchers and whatever had turned against her enough that her next really big set of movies, because she, she's a voice in Shark Tale in 04, and then Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason ends up being a lot worse reviewed than the first Bridget Jones. Pretty sure it still made money, but the the reception for that movie is not nearly the triumphant Renee Zellweger reception that maybe they had wanted it to be and then literally her next two movies are cinderella man which already feels like we're in like the renee dark ages and then this miss potter like this is only Mm -hmm. her third live action movie since cold mountain and already by this point it's it's it feels like we're on the downswing of her career. And then so after this movie, another animated performance in B movie 2007, and then it's Leatherheads and Appaloosa in 08. Um, a few movies in 2009, including New in Town, that romantic comedy New in Town, where she moves to like Alaska or Canada or whatever. And then Case 39, which is an unwatchable horror movie. And it sat around for like years. And speaking of sat around for years, then My Own Love Song happens in 2010, which is. I don't think was released in the States. I don't think either. And then that's it. That is the end of Renee's career up until the comeback now. Like, she made that movie a couple years ago with Keanu Reeves. Mm Mm-hmm. That I can't remember what it was called. The Whole Truth. Right. From uh, Courtney Hunt, the director of Frozen River. Frozen River. 
which is the which, degree like, to which that, that got movie... a very very small release. Yeah, that um, movie basically some doesn't of her, exist either. Some of this like end of career stuff was a choice of her. She chose to not work. Right, but it's and not like some she of left... that has to be because she was treated so poorly. I was going to say it's not like she left on a high note. She she chose to not work. I think because a the public, you know, you know, as you said, probably part of it was the way she was treated. I think part of it was the roles were drying up and part of it was like, she hadn't had a hit in forever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like it was her decision to step away, but also, you know, that hand was forced, I think probably by a few different factors. And so now she's back, as you said, she's got Judy coming up. She's, she was in the Netflix series. What if, where she's playing a delicious, femme fatale venture capitalist man-eater like manipulative that show is ridiculous she's like patty and it is an absolute joy to see her just have fun with this garbage it's like what if delightfully garbage show what if patty hughes were a venture capitalist instead of a lawyer is essentially that premise for what if yeah she's having a blast in it and it's very fun and of course during that hiatus there was that whole thing where like uh, as we mentioned the press photo comes out and it looks like she's had some kind of like eye lift or something and she looks so significantly different in this one photo that a lot of people thought she you know had a whole new face put on and like who is this person and blah blah blah, blah which was overblown which was so overblown well it's also there are I mean, not to get too, like, into, like, the nuts and bolts of whatever, but, like, I always feel like there are two things you can do with plastic surgery that really, really um, make your face look too much different than it was. One of them is veneers, and the other is an eye lift, and I think she, I think it was, I think that squint was so much a part of her presentation that... Mm correcting that i think was like it's sort of like the jennifer gray thing right where like jennifer gray got a nose job that made her look amazingly different than what she looked like during her like 80s heyday right and i think it was because that one feature was such a big part of what she looked like and i think part of that is true with renee although again that one photo i think was not exactly indicative of what she actually looks like. I think if you see her in What If, she looks like Renee Zellweger. She looks like Renee Zellweger a decade older than what you remember her from because she went away for a while. When she showed up at last year's um, Vanity Fair Oscar party, I love this picture of her. She looks so, like, triumphant, but she looks exactly like herself. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was very, very, very much overblown. So, yeah, we're rooting for Renee. I think I'm rooting for rooting for Renee in the abstract, but I think I stand by my point that, like, it's very, very much like she's only as good as her last film. She's only as popular as her last film in a way that I don't think is true of a lot of actresses. That's probably fair. Um, and I think it's even exacerbated now because she stopped making so much movies and at like the peak Renee Zellweger period she made a lot of movies that were very omnipresent yeah um, that you just really couldn't avoid um yeah I think like I don't know Jerry Maguire to Bridget Jones to Chicago to Cold Mountain like that is that's a pretty significant run run yeah yeah 
Yeah. And this is go this is sort of glossing over a lot of those late 90s movies that she made in the wake of Jerry Maguire, which were, you know, some bigger than others, but I think there's, you know, a price above rubies is in there and um that movie The Bachelor was in there, Me Myself and Irene is in there. So like, you know, White Oleander's in there. Um so it's not like she was only making these like major ones, but I think even those, even her like in-between movies back then were you know, interesting, and they kind of, you know, buffeted the rest of her career. And I think once she made Cinderella Man, I think it was also that, like, she just stopped making a lot of movies and was only making, like, one or two movies a year. So, mm-hmm. like, after after Cold Mountain, it's just Bridget Jones, The Ends of Reason, and then Cinderella Man, Miss Potter, Leatherheads, and Appaloosa are her next four movies, which, like... That's four, like four or five years of movies in one, you know, stretch. Yeah, beyond and she is basically playing the lady in all of those movies that are not Miss Potter. Like Miss Potter is the only one that really serves her. Correct. Yeah, but there is a certain extent that, like Miss Potter, I while it is only a movie that operates at a certain temperature and never more so. There is an extent where, like, I do think that this movie does show. Why she's valuable as a performer. I think that she's incredibly charming in this movie. I think she takes something that on the page is not all that interesting of a portraiture and makes Mm -hmm. it really, really watchable. What did you think in this movie of the cutesiness of only she can see these drawings sort of becoming animated on the page and, you know, reacting to her? Did you think it made her seem a little infantile? Because I think that's what it was flirting with for me. I think it pushed that a little bit too hard. Like, it gave us that note maybe five or six times in the movie when one or two might have sufficed. Where she would be, like, in the middle of a conversation with an adult and then turn and just be like, Benjamin Bunny, sit down. And it's just like, well, now she just looks like a fool or like a simpleton. And I don't think that's the message that this movie is trying to get at with Beatrix Potter. Oh, I meant to ask you, did you read the Peter Rabbit books as a kid? Were any of these, like, familiar to you? I was not a Peter Rabbit person. I didn't think I was either. And that, like, but then, like, we're getting the beginnings of the movie about like Mr. McGregor's farm and 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 I was too much of a weird kid to do Peter Rabbit. Like Peter <laughs> oh. Rabbit is very sweet. Oh, you're I too, was reading like Roll Doll. Uh, I see. Yeah. You yeah. were a, I like the weird. You stuff. were a dangerous kid with your Roll Doll books. No, I was just like a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. Um but I think I I must have have re- have read these as a kid because a lot of that stuff did definitely seem familiar to me. And as the post-credits reminded us, she's, like, the best-selling children's author of all time. Which I think since J.K. Rowling has officially surpassed. But, yes, at the point of the film, she was the highest-selling children's author of all time. Um, But to your question about the, like, whimsicalness of the amount to which Beatrix Potter talks to her drawings drawings in this movie, I do think at least... Renee Zellweger makes that palatable in a way that maybe another actress just maybe would have made her seem crazy with how much this movie keeps hammering the same note. Right. I loved the fact that the father being the father from Fleabag really, um, I don't know, it like added to that relationship he has with Beatrix in this where like he's, he's mostly this sort of like sweet dad. And then he has moments of being very strict and domineering. And that moment, those moments feel like so much more of a betrayal because (laughs) we see what a nice 
man he is the rest of the time and i feel like that's sort of the same vibe he has on fleabag where it's just like oh normally you're just like really kind of like nice and docile and then like the two or three times he's really mean to fleabag i'm just like you dick yeah it just yeah Yeah. it feels extra i like that actor a lot actually yeah he's really really good in this so can we talk a little bit about emily watson maybe since we have a little bit of time i love emily watson in this movie i love her in everything but like this is another role that it's like she is bringing way more to the table than is being brought to her and like I, it just I feel like we've talked about her before I think we have too what and would maybe it have been? In, in relation to like punch drunk love I feel like there was one movie we really went in on that for some reason but Emily Watson like deserves so much better than she usually gets and She's just one of our most most watchable actresses and, like, just shows up on screen and you're already on her side. She definitely deserves more. But, like, I think she's such a... I I have to... uh, I have to appreciate an actress who is able to step into a small role and just completely win me over and completely... Like, she does it in Gosford Park. She does it in... Synecdoche, New York. She that's that great joke in Synecdoche, New York, where all of a sudden he recasts Samantha Morton as Emily Watson, and I was like, yeah, that's perfect. Like that is yeah. <laughs> the vibe you're going for. I love her in Warhorse. I love her in Anna Karenina. She's really, really great in that movie. Um, One of the best performances of the '90s in Breaking the Waves. Oh yeah, well and that's like that's, a yes. total 180 from. I like it's the performance that probably unlocks all of like the powers she has as an actress but like has almost no correlation to the type of roles that she has gotten since yeah yes (laughs) all right anything else about miss potter before we move into imdb game territory i mean we didn't talk about ewan mcgregor for the obvious reasons that we talked about him last week and there'll be more movies that are closer aligned to him yeah um that we can talk about in the future, but he does sing in this movie, which I know for some people, yes, for some people, that'll really knees work. knocking. Yeah, yeah, he's fine. He's you know, I mean, I've, he's I've, absolutely fine in this movie. Yeah. I don't really, I like this is a good example for your allergy to him to say like, I don't understand him in this movie. Yeah, but he does sing quite lovely in yes. this movie. Yeah, Miss Potter, a movie I liked better than I thought I would. Yeah. Good for that. Totally. Good for that. Good for you. Do Do you have anything, or would you like to move on to the IMDb game? Why don't we move on to the IMDb game? Would you like me to explain? Yes. All right. So uh, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress, try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says are they that they are most known for. They have that little box at the top that says known for. If any of those titles are TV shows or animated voiceover work, we mention that up front so that the person guessing knows that ahead of time. After two wrong guesses, the guesser gets the release years of the remaining unguessed titles. If that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints because we like to get right answers eventually. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, do you want to guess or give first? Why don't I give first? All right, what do you got for me? So it's interesting, as I listened to you, I think this might be easier than I initially thought, because 
of something you mentioned during this episode. But since Renee Zellweger is attempting her big comeback this year in a biopic of Judy Garland, I thought I would make you guess Judy Garland. (gasps) Oh, thank you. (laughs) I love her so much. Um, Well, obviously, Wizard of Oz. Nope. No Wizard of Oz? No, I'm kidding. Of course it's Wizard of Oz. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, I was about to flip <laughs> my desk in my very tiny recording closet. It wouldn't have flipped. I would have flipped, probably. <laughs> All right. Wizard of Oz. Yes. A star is born. Correct. Ah, meet me in St. Louis. Correct. Masterpiece, meet me in St. Louis. Now let's see if you can go four for four. Mm. I'm of a couple thoughts here. Talk it out. I could Lame. go one of the more popular musicals. You could, which are I what? Could... What are the more popular musicals? Uh, uh, let me let me finish. Okay. Let me think. <laughs> or I could go her other Oscar nomination. I feel like it's going to be the other Oscar nomination and say Judgment at Nuremberg. You've gone four for four. Well done. Perfect score. Imagine me getting a perfect score <sighs> for Judy Garland. Yeah, I, I realized shocked. as you were being like, Judy Garland's my favorite. Like, I'm a Judy gay. I'm like, yeah, God damn it, He's going to go four for four. You got four for four last episode. I did. So I think this is only fair. On, I w- and I wouldn't even say that I'm a Robert Carlyle gay. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they're out there. Robert Carlyle gays, please. Yeah, get out, get hit, hit us up. Um, okay, so uh, in the meantime, I, for you, you'll be happy with this one. I don't think I went too difficult on you. I went the Bridget Jones route, and her one of her love interests, mm. I think, could have maybe deserved some awards love for this performance in Bridget Jones. I went with Hugh Grant. Okay. Yeah. The Oscar unnominated Hugh Grant. A lot of options there. A lot of options. Um, okay. So, Four Weddings and a Funeral seems like the place to start. Yes. Four Weddings and a Funeral. Okay. About a boy? About a boy, yes. Love Actually? That would have been a good nomination. Love Actually, yes. All right. Three for three. And none are television. There's no television, no. He's starting to do a lot more television. I feel like wasn't one of Sarah Jessica Parker's Did You Hear About the Morgans? That makes me want to maybe guess that, but I'm not not pulling the trigger on it quite so yet. I will ask you if you think that Did You Hear About the Morgans is a movie that exists or not. Well, obviously no. And yet, it's on her known for. Um, Other possibilities for Hugh Grant are... I don't know. It's interesting because, like... There's a lot of, like, other little rom-coms for him. I don't think he ever really, like... I mean, he's in, like, Cloud Atlas, right? But I don't know if I would guess Cloud His Atlas His roles in him. Cloud Atlas are bizarre. They're, he, he's the most difficult to support thing about Cloud Atlas, maybe? Because everybody who's in Cloud Atlas has at least one role where it's just, like, they're so good. Like... Wisha obviously playing the um, the young gay composer is like wonderful, and like Hanks is really good in playing Pitbull, <laughs> the guy who throws the guy off of the roof, <laughs> the guy with the chin strap. That's Pitbull. It's right. Tom Hanks is Pitbull. Right. 
Um, and I don't know if Hugh Grant ever has like one that he's like really good at. I don't know. Because some of his don't even have dialogue. Like when he plays the warrior man. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. All right, it's I'm, just that it's wild. I'm just going to guess, did you hear about the Morgans? No, yeah. of course not. Okay. But it was on hers. Okay. Yeah, but she has less movies. I know. All right. Leave me alone. Um, it's not Cloud Atlas, is it? Uh, is that? Uh, I will just say no. I will say no and not count that. No, that's you. a guess. I made a guess. All right, then fine. You're. Uh, this is uh, 1999. Is your remaining one? I was trying to get you to have a four for four. No, I already got it wrong. With did you heard about the Morgan, so I had already thrown that away. Well, 1999 is your year. 1999. You said there were a lot of little romantic comedies. This is not a little romantic comedy. It's a comedy. big romantic comedy. Oh, of course. I never think of this movie, even though I literally saw this on television four days ago. It was just on TV. It's Notting Hill. It's Notting Hill. Yeah. I love Notting Hill. I should have been able to do four for four. I should have come up with that one sooner. That was a huge hit. But yay, good job. Thank you. That was fun. Good job. And that's our episode. If you want more of This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell our listeners where they can find more of you. A, Twitter, at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. B, letterboxed. Letterboxed, uh, I'm on there as Joe Reed, also R-E-I-D. Fantastic. Um, and I am Chris File. You can find me on Twitter talking to my drawings of bunny rabbits at Chris V. File. Mm. That's F E I L under Letterbox at the same name. And I am also write regularly for the film experience. Uh, we would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. A five star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visits. So please help us buy more adjacent farmland so that we can donate them back to you. Uh, That's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz.